I'm Colleen, and this podcast is an inside look at recovery, which I define as a lifelong journey to get out of your own way. Recovery is about healing the past, finding meaning in the present, and creating a future that's in alignment with your purpose and values. Join me for mindset upgrades that move you from worry and regret to resilience and confidence. I'll share easy strategies for how to feel better without having to make major changes. Because it's not what you do, it's who you are. Self-care is the path to recovery. Because our needs are not negotiable. So in this episode, I'm going to talk about coping skills. This was one of the first and also um, most frequent requests I get is people say they want coping skills, especially in early sobriety. And I am going to touch on coping skills specific to early sobriety towards the end of this podcast. But first, I'm going to start with kind of a broad overview of what coping skills are so that you can kind of get an idea of where we go wrong and why we end up coping with alcohol or coping with food or coping with shopping or you know all of the numbing and distracting behaviors that we do why do we do that and i think the reason is kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of what a coping skill is coping skills aren't what we need to manage our lives. I mean, they are, that, but that's, that's another level. The first level, the foundation of coping, the foundation of resilience, if you will, is learning how to manage your nervous system, learning how to manage your emotions, learning how to practice self-care, understanding that there is a difference between stress and stressors. We use those words interchangeably, but stressors are what we mistake as the stress in our lives. You know, it's the conflict in the relationship. It's too many things on our to-do list. It's commitment. It's responsibility. It's obligation. That's what we say, oh, I just have a lot going on. I have a lot of stress in my life right now. But those are stressors. Stress is our response to what's going on in our lives. And think about it uh, on a day where you haven't had enough sleep and you feel like you're behind the gun and life is not going well and you stub your toe. And that pain is so overwhelming that you're just, you hit, you go from zero to 10 and the tears come and it's just so overwhelming and you know you kind of just dissolve maybe you start crying or screaming or whatever it is on another day uh, where you're feeling differently you stub your toe same amount of pain and you shake it off maybe you even laugh about it you know you take a minute you walk you do a lap and you're back and that's the difference between the stressor that happens externally and then the stress that we bring into it the stress that we react to it with and so what happens in especially alcohol use disorder but in any life you know just living with chronic burnout and overwhelm our nervous system is dysregulated and so our 
nervous system is kind of stuck in this fight or flight response. Just think of that, you know, where you're kind of ready to, to do battle at all times, you're on the defensive. And when your nervous system is dysregulated, you are running on autopilot. Your emotions are managing you. You are not managing your emotions. So something comes in and you don't have the bandwidth to think about it, to process it. You just, you're flying by the seat of your pants. The chicken with the head cut off, you know, house is on fire, all of those, all of those analogies. And when your nervous system is dysregulated, you respond to life in disproportionate ways. So whether it's an event or a person or a situation, you are either under or over reacting, depending on your specific stress response. And the reason that our nervous system gets dysregulated is because we're in a constant state of stress. That stress cycle never completes it. So we have a lot of unresolved stress. Our nervous system gets stuck in activated. What goes up has never come back down. It's just stuck, which keeps us in a state of chronic stress because the stress itself becomes a stressor. And the way to cope with stress is to first turn inward. When we're stressed, we're so focused on what is going on around us, what we need to do, how we need to react, what's coming next, trying to play the defense, trying to protect ourselves, try, trying to just keep all of our ball, balls in the air. And in focusing outward so much, we lose perspective and connection with what's going on inside. And so, you know, even as you're listening to this, take a moment to just move into your body. You know, if you're, if you can shut your eyes for a moment and if you can't, that's fine. Just drop your energy into your body and notice the sensation of being in your body. Are you feeling a lot of anxiety? Are you feeling tension and tightness? And this is the sensations of stress that are in our body that we become disconnected from and also that's driving our motivation to keep reaching outward to, because we think that if we do or say or get something outside of us, that somehow that's gonna make us feel better on the inside. And that's also why we end up reaching for substances. You know, we think that if we take a drink, that then we're going to feel better. And the problem with drinking in particular is that alcohol is a depressant drug. It's a sedative. So what does that mean? That means for about 20 minutes, when you first drink, you do feel a calming sense of relief. But then after 20 minutes, the brain has to counteract all of the uh, sedative effects because otherwise you might get so relaxed you forget to breathe. And so the brain releases cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine. So within 20 minutes to an hour after taking a drink, your, your neurochemistry, your stress response has turned on. And so the only way to avoid experiencing that stress is to keep drinking. Um, 
And then, of course, these high levels, especially of cortisol, can last for multiple days after we drink. So even though, like I used to wake up in the morning, my blood alcohol is back to normal, although actually it probably wasn't, but I thought it was. And I would begin to move throughout my day, you know, thinking every single day was a clean slate as far as alcohol was 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 concerned. You know, blood alcohol level goes up, blood alcohol level goes down, fresh day starts. But what I didn't realize is that I was stuck in a chronic state of high cortisol levels. And so the feeling inside my body was anxious. Um, Some days it was depressed, but I had less resilience. I had less ability to cope. And so that is part of why we're all so fascinated in either when we're thinking about drinking or when we're thinking about quitting or when we first quit because we think we need all these coping skills to handle what's going on in our lives. But the truth is we have to learn how to handle what's going on in our body. So one thing I do with myself as well as my clients is teach that think of think like if you're driving a car or flying an airplane although most of us aren't pilots but just think of all of the dials that kind of tell you how much gas you have how much air pressure you have how much windshield wiper fluid think of having a dial like that that measures your anxiety and i'm just going to use anxiety um you might also be able to substitute the word depression if that's something that you cope with but anxiety is a real good general you know it covers frustration it it covers resentment it covers disappointment you know there's we're just uncomfortable in our body so i'm just going to use the word anxiety but it's not limited to that if you will you can create dials for everything but it's easy to think about this with just one dial and on any in any given moment on a scale of one to ten are you aware of the level of anxiety inside your body And that's the first step, is becoming aware that there are sensations in your body that subconsciously you're trying to escape, which is why you wanna drink, you wanna eat, you wanna run, you wanna do, you wanna go, 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 fix, talk, whatever. You're trying to escape your body's anxiety by either thinking or doing your way out of it. Um, But the first step is noticing that you have anxiety, noticing and starting to make that a practice. So the first coping skill I'm giving you is a pretend dial that measures your anxiety. And in any given moment, you're aware of where you're at. Now, what, how do you change the level? This kind of ties into your nervous system. You know, your anxiety might be a measure of the state of your nervous system. Are you in a state of fight or flight or are you in a state of calm, safety, connection? Because when you're thinking, whatever thoughts in your head, they are a reflection of what's going on inside your body, okay? So if a person is really mad, then everything that happens to them is is going to piss them off. They're going to perceive that somebody's trying to screw them out of what they're deserved. They're going to perceive that they're doing more than their fair share. They're going to perceive that things are wrong. Glass is half full. If somebody's really fearful, they're going to perceive a lot of threats in their environment. They're going to feel a subconscious need to protect or defend themselves. 
And vice versa, if somebody's super happy-go-lucky and open and trusting, they're going to give people the benefit of the doubt. They're not going to assume that something that someone said was meant to insult them. Okay, so the state of your nervous system, think of a pair of glasses. They're the prescription by which you're perceiving all of your incoming data. And so if the state of your nervous system is on high alert, then everything coming at you feels like a bigger deal. It feels like a threat. And conversely, if, if the state of your nervous system is on safety mode, calm and cl- then you're just going to perceive that you have more time. You're, you're not feeling so intense about things. And what you need to become aware of in addition to your anxiety dial, where, where are you at, you know, on a scale of one to 10, you need to be able to understand what triggers or turns up that dial. And then also what glimmers of hope, what gives you glimmers of relief. So sometimes that's a thought, sometimes that's music, sometimes that's taking a breath. Those are the coping skills that I can give you a hundred different suggestions or a thousand different suggestions. Those are the type of coping skills that you have to try on and see what works for you as you become first aware of where you're at on the anxiety um, and then what actually allows you to dial that anxiety down, what actually resolves the stress cycle for you and brings you into a state of calm. You know, and this is where your personality comes into play, because if you're an extrovert, you know, it might calm you down to have a conversation or to spend time with somebody. If you're more of an introvert, then the only thing that's going to calm you down is quiet, maybe darkness, you know, stillness. And so you have to find the coping skills that work best in your nervous system and be aware that they change over time and from day to day. And the same thing that works all the time, there's nothing that works all the time. You have to just learn how, you know, it's kind of like driving a stick shift, you know, when to engage the clutch and when to let off and that tension between stepping on the gas, letting off the gas, applying the brake, letting off the brake. That's just where you learn how to, let's say, drive your body, okay? The trick, the coping skill of all coping skills is to notice your body first and to stop trying to fix the outside world or change the outside world because the outside world is a reflection of your internal environment. So the coping skill of all coping skills is to turn your reflection inward and understand that that decreasing your stress happens on the inside. And often the first thing that you notice that's happening on the inside of your body is a crazy hamster wheel of thought. And there's a lot of confusion um, in, in terms of feeling your feelings and what that means and a misunderstanding that somehow feeling your feelings means that you have to stop thinking. And the thing is, is that your feelings are your thoughts. In terms of like anatomy, feelings are just the sensation of thoughts in your brain. So just like you can hear the words that I'm speaking, 
you can feel the thoughts that you're thinking. Just like, you know, dog poop has a smell, so there's dog poop and you can smell that. Um, or just like you put um, a piece of chocolate in your on your tongue and you can taste that. So the chocolate has taste and the poop has smell and my words have sound. Your thoughts have feelings. They are one in the same. There's no disconnecting them. You feel because you think. And where this gets like super um, overwhelming is that you're only aware of about 5% of the stuff that you're thinking. You have over 60,000 thoughts running through your head on any given day. And so think of like holding a flashlight in a dark attic in a big, huge space, and there's just tons. It's a football field size attic, and you can only see what your flashlight is pointed on. That's how consciousness works in our brain. And it's more than just words. They're also sensations. They're also images. They're also smells and tastes and sound. And so your nervous system's job is to monitor all of this information, and then your feelings are your dial on what information, what's going on. So your anxiety dial, if you will, is super important because it may not even reflect like what's going on for you in any given moment. Like we all know those days where everything's going right and there's not a gosh darn reason in the world why you should feel upset, but you do. Because that's happening on a subconscious level. Your mind is thinking about something or processing something or even the way you moved your body. Think about muscle memory. The way you moved your body triggered some sort of unconscious experience or a memory, okay? And so all of this is going on in the subconscious level. And so that's why the number one coping skill is to become aware of what's going on in your body so that you can let those sensations that are coming up for you tell you what thoughts you need to untangle. So imagine like a drunk, that junk drawer that you have with all of your chargers and cords and anything you don't know what to do with. Just like imagine opening that drawer and it's just this big tangle of cords. That's what our brains are like in early sobriety. That's what our nervous systems are like. Um, in any sense, whether you're in sobriety or not, what, when you're experiencing a sense of overwhelm, it's because you have not untangled all of the cords. So imagine that each cord is a thought, you know, and on one end you've got the words and on the other end of the cord is the sensation that you're feeling in your body. And all of those thoughts and corresponding feelings are jumbled up. And so the state of your nervous system, the state of your body is the sum total of everything that you're dealing with. And so as you begin to feel a sensation, trace it back to the thought, resolve the thought, then you begin to learn how to walk, talk, and feel at the same time. But when you're first starting this journey, it can be really overwhelming. And, you know, there's one saying out there that, you know, feelings aren't facts and, or don't trust your thoughts, always trust your feelings. And, and that's a really good rule of thumb to turn towards your feelings, but it's not that your feelings are accurate, 
They're just an accurate reflection of your thoughts. And your thoughts are all sorts of subconscious and limiting beliefs that you've not chosen. You know, from the day you're born, you're told what your name is and what's expected of you and how to behave and what you're good at and what you're not and what's right and what's wrong. And so we're programmed literally like a software program. We are programmed on how to think. And then as we get older, and we start to think for ourselves, some of our new thoughts and beliefs conflict with programs that are running in the background or maybe in the forefront. We may not even believe, you know, this is where subconscious limiting beliefs, like as a woman, I believe that I need to make sure everybody around me is okay before I sit down. Or if someone's upset, I need to try to fix that. Like those are the sort of beliefs you're not even aware of, but they're creating anxiety in your body because on the one hand, you're thinking, I have a right to take care of myself and I deserve a break. And oh, P.S., this is way too fucking much. I cannot handle everything on my plate. But then on the subconscious level, you've got, well, you have to. And if you don't have sex with your husband tonight, he's going to leave you for another woman. And if you don't do everything for your kids, then all the teachers at school are going to think you're a bad mother. And also your kids are going to think you're a bad mother. And then pretty soon they're going to be, you know, having drug problems and living lives on the street. You know, it's just like, that's the, that's the junk drawer of all this insane stuff. And so first tuning into your anxiety dial and realizing when you're experiencing it and then sitting for a moment, noticing what the emotion is and then beginning to, to trace that back to the original thought, that is how you begin to cope with your stress. So I want to repeat that coping skills are not tools for managing life, at least until You've got the tools for managing your body, learning how to manage your mind, learning how to manage your emotions so that they are not managing you by realizing that your emotions are caused by thoughts and beliefs. And beliefs are just thoughts that you no longer question. Beliefs are just thoughts that you believe are true. You're you're taking them on faith. You're taking them on assumptions. And it's good to have faith and we can't get through life. We can't get out of bed in the morning if we're not operating on a safe set of assumptions. But when your beliefs are conflicting with, you know, when your subconscious beliefs are conflicting with your conscious beliefs, that's what's creating all the cognitive dissonance. And that's what's creating stress in your body. And if you, if you misperceive the stress in your body as a function of what's going on in your life, then you're just going to keep running around in circles. So, so the coping skill of all coping skills, it's awareness. The number one coping skill is awareness. It is learning how to notice and name what's going on in your body and just allowing it to be. So I'll transition from that into the coping skills that really served me in early sobriety. And it was, I think I was two hours post decision to quit drinking and my temporary sponsor and I were on the phone and I was you know, verbally vomiting all over her about, you know, all of my concerns and fears and anxiousness. And, and she said the words to me, you don't have to figure anything out. 
you don't have to figure anything out. And so this is where that analogy of our tangled cords inside the drawer, the more you pull on that and the more you just are ripping around through all the cords, that's not going to work. So the first thing is to stop and pause and just allow the anxiety to be there and not try to think your way sane. Remember, your thoughts are a reflection of the stress inside your body. They are not true objective statements about you know the universe or about your life or about your ability or about the past or the future. Your thoughts are just a reflection of your nervous system, which is why on a good day, you know, water rolls off a duck butt, but on a bad day, you know, everything's pissing you off. So the first tool that I really found helpful in early sobriety was to not try to figure anything out and just to get comfortable with discomfort, get comfortable with not knowing. I kind of refer to it as kicking the can down the road. I loved the AA um, tenant that said, don't make any major decisions for the first year. I took that up to the one year date. You know, in the early days, I wasn't sure if I was gonna stay married. I wasn't sure about what I wanted to do with my career. I wasn't sure how to handle all this with my kids. I wasn't sure about anything. And so knowing I had a year to figure it out, now it didn't take me a year to figure it out, but in that first day, in that first week, in that first month, knowing it wasn't my job to figure it out, it was just my job to not drink and to take care of myself, that really, really helped. So that was the first coping skill in sobriety. Don't, you don't have to figure anything out. Just stop thinking, just kick the can down the road. And to this day, when I find myself in anxiety, that helps. If I'm in anxiety, it is not time to think about it. You know, if I'm not in a positive state where thinking involves a pencil and a paper and I'm excitedly writing down my list or my action plan or whatever, then I don't have any business thinking. So that still applies to this day, but it was super helpful in early sobriety. The second coping skill in terms of dealing with alcohol and alcohol cravings, which I didn't have a lot of because for me, once I made the decision to not drink and within a few days I had read just, just Holly Whitaker's book, Quit Like a Woman, I no longer believed that alcohol was going to solve my problems. And therefore, I never thought that alcohol was a good idea. Now, I had a lot of problems and I wanted to escape my body and I wanted to escape my life and I didn't know what to do, but I knew that drinking wouldn't help. But, you know, I I, still may have had some low level thoughts because I remember this coping skill called playing the tape forward was super helpful. I found it more helpful as I encountered social situations or, you know, I don't know, a really stressful day or a really good day. You know, the first time I marked a one month, one month of sobriety, of course, that thought crept in of, well, I just proved I could go a month, so maybe I should have a drink. Anytime thoughts of drinking came up, my coping skill was to play the tape forward. So let's like, okay then, so if we're gonna have that drink, how am I gonna feel? 
How long am I going to feel that? Then what? Then what? Then what happens later? Then what happens when I'm sleeping? Then how do I sleep? Then in the middle of the night, then tomorrow, then the next day, then one week from now, playing the tape forward. And usually that provided a very nice uh, tour of memory lane where very quickly I realized, yeah, I've run that experiment. Yeah. I've got enough data in my what not to do journal that this situation is not going to be any different than anything I've ever done in the past. And so playing the tape forward based on prior experiences, super helpful. Um, the third coping skill in early sobriety that was um, so helpful was immersing myself in the sober mindset. So I've shared that, you know, I started my journey um, seeking support from AA, quickly realized it really wasn't for me. But during the first year of sobriety, I probably listened to a thousand hours of Quitlet. So any book that I could find, I bought on Audible and listened to. I also got into many, many different podcasts and listened. I loved sober stories. And I loved the ones even about that were from people that had been in AA or some other recovery program. You know, I loved the stories of people who had literally rock bottomed and gotten, you know, sent to rehab and multiple times, like Elizabeth Vargas's story. It's just insane. You know, she's this on-air news anchor and she keeps trying to escape through rehab, you know. And what those stories did for me is not inform me of, you know, what I needed to do, but it gave me a, a ground with which to form some opinions on. Like, I'm like that or I'm not like that. Or, oh, I bet that might help me. Or for sure, that's stupid and that wouldn't help me. You know, so it gave me exposure to all different mindsets for sobriety so that I could form my own. So that I could you know, just be enlightened and get new ideas that many of which I quickly dis discarded. But I really liked stories about not only sobriety, but recovery, no matter how they got there. You know, I think of recovery as a mountain and we're all trying to get to the top and there are many paths to the top. So whether you are in AA or whether you're, you know, in some 90-day court-ordered forced rehab program or whether you are quitting cold turkey on your own and not participating in sober lifestyle or culture at all or whether you're like me and you're just kind of a patchwork of what works and what doesn't for you, trying ideas on like a pair of shoes, keeping the ones you like, like whatever, recovery is a mountain and we're all going up. And so it's fun to hear about other people's journey. I loved immersing myself in the sober mindset. I loved listening. Um, and that was kind of twofold. It not only informed me about what I wanted and what I didn't want in sobriety, but it also kept my mind busy. So, you know, if you're going to be on social media, be following sober accounts versus your old accounts that, you know, hey, I, I, snuck alcohol in the plane. I had to put it in my stomach. You know, all the things that make used to make me laugh. Um, I needed to stay away from those. Um, just because when I checked my anxiety dial, 
those things that I used to find funny, I found a little bit anxiety inducing because I still had yet to make sense of my own sense of humor outside of all the alcohol jokes. And I, I now, you know, I, I guess the truth is I don't find those things funny. I would never not laugh. I respect the humor, but because I, I don't drink anymore, I don't find that funny. But in the early days, I just went with, I don't have to figure this out yet. Like, I don't know. And I'm certainly not like anti-alcohol jokes. I mean, alcohol, you tomorrow, still funny. Uh, but it's not me doing that anymore. You know, I'm not the one alcoholing you tomorrow. And um, the final coping skill that I want to mention kind of t- circles back to the way we started. And that was that I recognized that I needed to create a cocoon for myself. I recognized that my anxiety dial needed to be kept in the green. And so anything that put me in a state where I felt overwhelmed, um, I avoided. So what that looked like if I, you know, my husband and I were going to disagree about something, often I, I left the room in the middle of the conversation and I, I had to save myself. And so there was a lot of me running to my bathroom, running to the closet, running to the guest room. And actually, I stayed in our guest room for like six weeks because I did not have the bandwidth to talk about my sobriety and how that impacted our marriage and what responsibility I was willing to take for any problems or whatever. I I had not figured that out yet. And so cocooning myself and protecting myself from situations that caused me stress were really helpful. Now, at the same time, I must, I must remind you that what feels stressful to, to me may not be stressful to you. For example, on my day one, the first day I quit, I joined my, some of my drinking buddies around a bonfire. I wanted to do that which is insane. You know, most of the time people, it's not insane. It sounds insane. Oftentimes people are like, I need to avoid my drinking friends. But in this particular group, I knew they weren't like going to come at me hard. I knew I didn't want to drink. And what I needed was to know that I, I was still a person and that I could be seen and I could sit around a bonfire and have a conversation. Like I just needed to know that. Um, And I didn't stay forever and I wasn't tempted to drink. I was right. And so, you know, full circle, like learning how to notice what's going on in your body and then trust yourself to make good decisions and not like operate off of some somebody else's list of helpful and harmful or right or wrong, but trying things out and just staying present in your body in real time. Oh, this is helping. Or I thought this would help. It's not helping. I need to, you know, to redirect my efforts at this point. So in conclusion, as you begin to learn new coping skills, understand that the mother of all coping skills is understanding the difference between stress and stressors and understanding that you cannot deal with the stressors in your life until you handle the stress inside your body. Learning how to manage your mind so that you can manage your emotions 
allows you to not be managed by them, to not just be running on autopilot, to look first at your nervous system and to learn how to resolve your stress from within by giving your body the attention, the space, the time that it needs will move you forward. And the sooner you respect the bandwidth that has shrunk because you are in early sobriety and they don't call it recovery for nothing. The sooner you treat yourself like you're in recovery, the the quicker your bandwidth will expand, okay? It's like you can't expand your bandwidth by blowing your circuit breakers. You have to respect and move within it and then gradually your resilience grows because you're learning how to respect your body and respect your boundaries and reset when you need to so that you're not blowing your circuit breakers. That's the ultimate goal. And then my four starter skills for early sobriety, starter coping skills are just to remember, you don't have to figure anything out and overthinking never solves anything. Um, Also, when you do have a decision to make or you are struggling with cravings, play the tape forward because you already know how it's gonna go. Then immerse yourself in sobriety mindset. So read and listen and watch and just stay grounded in focusing on the direction that you wanna go. You know, just immersing yourself in things that motivate and inspire and inform all of it so that you're moving in the right direction. And then finally, just respect your bandwidth and create a little bit of cocoon for yourself. Now is not the time to be taking on new projects or committing. Now is the time to be calling in some favors, quite frankly. Again, they call it recovery for a reason. And there is nothing better than taking the time to learn to walk, talk, and feel, learn to sleep, learn to eat, learn to take care of yourself. So quickly, you're going to emerge and just be brighter and better than you've ever been in your entire life. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please take the time to rate and review the show so that other people can find it. I really appreciate it. And check out the show notes for any resources I've mentioned, including links to follow me on Instagram and join my private Facebook group where I connect with my tribe every day. I love it in there and we have so much fun. And finally, if you're ready to redefine sobriety so that you can feel excited about quitting drinking, follow the link to my 10 days to spontaneous sobriety course where I will help you eliminate, eradicate, obliterate, cancel your desire to drink because looking and feeling your best is addictive too. I'll see you soon.